0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 19th of February, 2024.
1: Nearly two years in, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine going anywhere? The EU and NATO member state, which has done a security deal with China, and after Trump University, Trump stakes and Trump NFTs, Trump sneakers. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Daniela Pellet and Bill Hayton will discuss all the day's big stories, plus our On This Day historical series recalls what was almost certainly the shortest presidency on record. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Daniela Pellett, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and by Bill Hayton, Associate Fellow for the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Daniela, regular listeners will be aware that I often end up asking you at the top of the daily which whimsical local history museum you have recently been to and this daily I can say I have recently been myself to a whimsical local history museum as recently as yesterday lunchtime um, it was the Karl Valentin Museum in Munich um, he, I, I know you've never previously heard of it. well <laughs> am I here to tell you uh, no he was a silent movie star of the 1920s widely regarded apparently as the Bavarian Charlie Chaplin
0: that's amazing because really the highest value of local history museums is the obscurity so mm-hmm. you've done very 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 well I actually
1: genuinely I don't think he's obscure in Bavaria you get the impression he was actually quite the big whoop at the time but there's a weird little cafe on it's, it's in a uh, castle turret on the outskirts of the old city, I guess, of Munich, and there's a weird little cafe at the top where they do serve an excellent meatball with potato salad.
0: I'm writing all of this down.
1: Yeah, so let's hear it for Carl Valentin. Um, Moving seamlessly along, though, Bill, you have not only also recently been to Munich, for I suspect... We missed each other. We did miss each other. You were there for broadly similar reasons, i.e. the Munich Security Conference, but you are yourself also attempting to create a local history attraction. Exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm part of a group trying to turn a a water tower that's been derelict for 40 years back back into life, a place that people will come. Because water towers are generally quite high up. So you can get a good view from the top.
1: Well, this is why they're called towers. Indeed. Um, I can see that Daniela is already beside herself at the prospect of a, a renovated <laughs> I've water seen, tower.
0: I've already seen pictures and asked she, questions, she's, and she's I'm a planning convert. a visit. She's yep. a convert.
1: Bill, Bill, where is this thing, and, and when can people
2: in, in see it? In glorious hotel of Colchester. I mean, you can come and see the outside of it any time you like, but uh, coming to the inside will take a few years, you know, it's, until we've cleared out all the pigeon poo. A few years? Uh, Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it hasn't been used as a water tower for 40 years. There's quite a lot of work to
1: do. Okay. well, we will pass some of that time with tonight's Monocle (laughs) Daily. Uh, And this coming Saturday will mark two years since Russia launched its 72-hour lightning conquest of Ukraine. Though Russia has been thwarted that long by a combination of the gallantry of Ukraine's military and the assistance of Ukraine's allies, Russia has not been entirely defeated. Indeed, Russia appears to have made advances in recent days, capturing the largely deserted ruins of Avdivka, which this time two years ago was a town home to around 30,000 people. Ukraine and what might happen next was the understandably dominant theme of the recently concluded Munich Security Conference, from which the team from Monocle Radio's Foreign Desk and indeed Bill Hayton have just returned. Among the people we spoke to was former CIA Director and Commander of US Forces in Afghanistan and Iraq, General David Petraeus. Well, this is a pivotal moment, and it depends in particular at this moment on the approval of continued U.S. support, $60 billion in the bill approved by the Senate. The House has to now take that up. But it's a question as to whether it will get a vote, even though there is a substantial bipartisan majority in the House for continued support for Ukraine. And obviously, the White House is eagerly awaiting this particular bill to sign it into law. So that's a big, big issue. I think that's the single biggest issue here at Munich, uh, surrounds the prospects of continued U.S. support. And then also, obviously, questions about that have been raised by uh, former President Trump about continued U.S. commitment to NATO. That was General David Petraeus speaking to me in Munich. You can hear the full interview on the Foreign Desk on Saturday. Uh, but, Bill, to the, the situation on the ground in Ukraine as we understand it, um, Avdivka, judging by all the footage you can find of it, is a more or less total ruin. There is nothing really left of it. Um, so if Russia has retaken it, is that either strategically or symbolically important? Well, I guess symbolically important, and it you know
2: it comes ahead of, of Russia's elections, um, uh, so I guess it's a it's a victory that can be trumpeted, um, and I guess also that the timing, um, in some ways, I mean, it was it was it's obviously you know, terrible news for for Ukraine, but I suppose there's a way of getting attention at the Munich Security Conference, i.e. if you don't fund us and you don't start providing us with more artillery shells and all the rest of it, you know, this is, uh, you know, a premonition of things that are to come. So maybe in that sense, and it is a way of, you know, focusing the minds of of European and and North American leaders. um, it will serve a purpose for the Ukrainian leadership.
1: Uh, Daniela, there was a definite contrast perceptible at Munich versus Munich Security Conference this time last year. Last year there was a a certain amount of optimism in the air. I think there was a lot of surprise that Ukraine had lasted and held out as long as it had. There was a lot of talk about the imminent uh, spring offensive. There was a lot of hope, I think, that Russia might fold calamitously up. Um, That hasn't happened. Did everybody get a bit carried away with that, even if understandably?
0: Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think we were all uh, surprised and encouraged by uh, Ukraine's resilience over uh, the first year of the war. The issue is now, as the Ukrainians have been warning for a while, we're looking at a, a stalemate. We're looking at trench warfare. Um, and another major issue, and we're going to be discussing this later on, is is that is Israel and Hamas' mm-hmm. war. Um, that has... Um, That has sucked the attention away from Ukraine, which was the Ukrainian strategy quite legitimately was to position this as not just a war of Ukraine versus Russia, but Western democracy and so on against Russia. But now uh, Israel-Palestine has kind of returned to its foundational um, aspect as the key conflict that needs to be solved to avoid um, massive conflagration elsewhere. So considering that what Ukraine needs now uh, is actual, I mean, to put it crudely, bullets, mm-hmm. uh, artillery, shells, it um, just simply needs simply need capacity. Um, that puts it in a, in a really awkward position and it's very hard to make that same uh, argument, right? We, we are at the forefront of ensuring global security.
1: Bill, it did strike me that the, the two things that dominated Munich, and I suspect this is not an original observation. First, there was just before the conference began, a uh, bizarre outburst by Donald Trump suggesting that he would wave Russia into uh, the territory of any NATO ally that displeased him. And then, of course, once the conference got properly underway, the news out of Russia of the, the death of Alexei Navalny, the combination of which left you with a sense that Europe is caught between uh, an obviously ruthless uh, and potential serious foe in one direction and an erratically reliable ally uh, in the other. Did you get the impression that European leaders and perhaps European publics have yet fully apprehended that? No,
2: I don't think they have. But I think the leaders are sort of, you know, I, I you know, the EU. It takes a long time to act, but you know, it, it takes a financial crisis to get its economic act together. It takes something like this to, I think, get its security act together. So you, you do get the impression that they are, you know, these kind of, you know, pan-European defence procurement, all this kind of stuff is starting to take off. Um, and you know, we know that things are behind schedule, but I, I definitely get the impression that sort of this sense of being, you know, caught between the devil and the deep blue Trump, you know, kind of will be... Uh, you know, is actually forcing them to, to really take this seriously. Um, but the problem, of course, is capacity and, 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 you know, kind of things. I mean, I mean, Daniel was saying, you know, artillery shells. Well, half of Ukraine's artillery requires 122 millimetre shells. NATO's stuff is all 155 millimetre shells. We don't just have, have the factories to kind of make this stuff. So the, there are these kind of big logistical hurdles. You know, Olaf Scholz went and said, you know, we're going to provide all these shells to Ukraine. But who's going to make them? It's yeah. not clear.
1: Um, Daniela, there's also still a recurring theme when you speak to – certainly when you speak to Ukrainians at events like this and and certainly when you speak to those politicians from the countries closer to Russia who have spent the last two years saying, we told you so – that there is still a concern that a lot of what you might think of as older Europe is still somewhat hesitant, that they are kind of afraid of what Ukrainian victory and therefore Russian defeat would portend. And it's doubtless the case that were Russia to be defeated, that would cause challenges of its own. But nevertheless, does Europe actually at some point have to pick a side properly?
0: I think Europe has picked a side Overall, but the question is how far Europe is going to act to um, support what Ukraine will accept as as a victory. I mean, we have numerous examples of frozen conflicts within the European continent uh, where which have, have been managed. You know, we have uh, you know in Georgia, you've got uh, South Ossetia, um, you've got Abkhazia, Moldova, you have Transnistria. You know. These are these are examples of um, Russian military encroachment, which has been managed. Uh, so, and I think this is another thing that Ukrainians are, are worried about: the idea that a compromise will be reached, which is acceptable. So, it's very far away from uh, from what Kiev sees in its uh, in its peace plan that it set out. But again. The conflict could be managed, but we're once again referring to our future topic of Israel uh, Hamas. Mm-hmm. Conflicts tend not to be that manageable in in the long run. Um, and I've heard lots of warnings in, in recent days about how Russia uh, has now got its eyes set on on, on Moldova. Um, this isn't, wasn't, would not have been implausible, you know, a, a year, 18 months ago. But I think people are genuinely worried in the more kinetic areas that. Europe is sort of losing interest and leaving the door open for Russia.
1: Just finally, on Munich security related security conference-related themes, Bill. Um, I don't know if you had a fancier lanyard than we did. We had the yellow loser's lanyard that meant we couldn't really get much further. I had the green semi-loser's lanyard, <laughs> which means you can come in for three hours and then out you go. But you, you could actually go into the proper oh, place where the proper the, people the, yeah, were. Yeah, the hallowed
2: Hof. Ah. OK, yes. well,
1: I, we will be having words after the show about how mm. one acquires one of those. I, I, I kind of figure if we go up one rung a year, then... Given another decade you too or so, could
2: have a free latte.
1: Exactly, a free latte. Yeah, well, yeah. you should have tried the coffee in the actual press <laughs> center. It was ghastly. Um, but obviously, the the keynote speaker in the big, proper fancy building where people like you, Bill, were apparently briefly allowed into went, yeah. briefly uh, was, of course, President Volodymyr Zelensky. He wasn't there last year for obvious reasons. Two years ago, I think was pretty much the last time we saw him in a suit mm-hmm. and tie because it was a Just matter before. of matter of days before the invasion. Does he still have the same impact, do you think, now as a a presence in person?
2: I think so, in the sense that he, you know, here is someone who is really, you know, walking the walk. Um, And, I mean, he turned up in his sort of slightly combat fatigue sort of uh, outfit again, no sign of a a, a suit and tie. Um, Um... Well, I I guess, you know, the the fact that he hasn't won the sort of sweeping victory that lots of people hoped for after the sort of initial advances back in 2022... uh, and the sort of stalemate, and the kind of, and the questions that Daniela was, was raising about, you know, is this? Are we looking to a stalemate, and how do we, you know, how do we reach some kind of settlement, and does that mean that the Europeans are going to have to pressure Zelensky to accept less than what he wants? I guess that means he's not quite the, you know, the the, the, the sainted figure that he may have been last year.
1: Well, to the Middle East now, where Israel has set a clock ticking on its intentions towards Rafah. This is the southernmost city of the Gaza Strip, relatively undamaged by the fighting of the last four months, and as a consequence, presently home to perhaps one and a half million people who have nowhere else they can plausibly go. Benny Gantz, former chief of staff of the IDF and a member of Israel's war cabinet, has announced that if Hamas has not freed all the hostages it holds by March 10th, A major Israeli offensive will, presumably, do to Rafa what has been done to the rest of Gaza. First, a clip from another of our Munich interviews. This is Ron Prosser, former Israeli ambassador to the UK and the UN, now Israeli ambassador to Germany. Israel not just has the right, but we have, we
2: have, if we really want to really survive in this region, if we want to have peace israel has to absolutely take hamas completely the infrastructure out
1: and in the sense when you look at this you ask what isn't the world getting that was ron prosser israel's ambassador to germany there will be much more of that interview on shows later in the week um First of all, Daniela, to this March 10th deadline, that is quite a way off. So why is Israel telegraphing this and why at such a distance?
0: Well, I think Israel does need a bit of wiggle room. Um, America has been right behind uh, Israel from the beginning, but the tensions are clearly showing. Um mm. Biden apparently has been quite swearing about uh, Netanyahu, which he, is, he
1: does seem to have that effect on American presidents generally. I was
0: going to say it's not that it's not that difficult, Um you know, And privately, i.e., publicly, uh, expressing <laughs> his uh, his disappointment, his doubts, and his and his frustrations. Um, the issue is though that U.S. support for Israel goes far beyond uh, one president and one. Uh, highly uh, frustrating and annoying Prime Minister. You know, it's seen as a strategic imperative, and the idea that uh, America would stop this or say, "Right, you can't go into Rafa," is, you know, we're not there yet. But I think the disapproval is has been so strong. Uh, Israel has managed to coast along, really, despite um, such huge criticism from its allies too. The, the, you know, Jerusalem also wants a way to climb down, not hmm. Netanyahu because he would quite like this to go on as, to sort of... Um, it's quite plausible that he wants to delay this, uh, any resolution, because when, as soon as this war uh, comes to a, a sort of close or what would, would count as a close for Israel, uh, he's likely to uh, lose in elections and then his corrupt, numerous corruption trials can can ensue. But it, internally, although there is support for, for the war... Uh, Internally, there's huge pressure on the government to release the hostages. That, for Israel and Israelis, is is the the major issue. This idea that you're going to defeat Hamas, uh, which seems implausible to us, I imagine also I think would seem implausible to quite a few um, Israelis. But the idea of uh, releasing the remaining hostages, that is a huge, huge live issue. So anything that can produce that would be seen as a kind of interim win domestically.
1: Um, Bill, what do you think? Does, is Israel hoping at some level to be talked out of doing Tarafa as it has done to Gaza City, Khan Yunus and other locations in the Gaza Strip? Uh, because balancing against that theory, I guess, is the word from Qatar, which has been attempting to act as a mediator, uh, that conversations are, and I quote, not promising.
2: Right. Well, three weeks is a long time for something to happen, I mm. guess. Um, and I mean it's it's clear you can't, you know, Israel can't defeat Hamas. I mean, unless it literally is going to sort of, you know, remove every Hamas sympathizer. I mean, how how is that even going to be possible? Um, and you know, we know what Hamas want. They want to be able to say some kind of victory. So they want to be able to say that they got some of their own, um, you know, prisoners released from Israeli jails, or at least to have not been defeated. That will be, you know, a victory from the Hamas point of view. So I mean, if you're, you know, you're two, you know, metrics are destroy Hamas. You know, and and, and anything less than that is, is 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 not a win. Whereas Hamas is just. Keep on existing, then you know the, the setup is that Hamas is going to you know, win in their own terms because there will still be something left of Hamas. It's just inevitable, given you know unless you're going, you know unless Israel is really seriously thinking of you know, expelling every single Palestinian from Gaza. Um, and then uh, you know we know that Egypt and everybody else will will, will try and prevent that happening. So I, I just don't don't see how this can come out. Whether you know whether the, the Qataris can negotiate some kind of face-saving compromise, some you know Hamas prisoners get released and you know and the Israeli hostages get released. But then you know, that, that is Hamas's bargaining chip. So why would they do that unless they get something very, very good in return?
1: Well, you, Bill mentions Egypt, Daniela, and one other gathering plot development is that aerial photography seems to suggest that Egypt is engaging in fairly hasty yet substantial construction around the Gaza border. Now, Egypt has been resolute all along that it will not accept uh, a population transfer from Gaza, at which point it is worth reminding everybody that two countries... Countries have been blockading the Gaza Strip for a very long time, Egypt sealing off the southern border. But it does appear that they are preparing uh, if necessary to accommodate people, perhaps a hundred thousand of them. Um, do you sort of share Bill's confidence perhaps that Israel is not actually intending to chase the entire population of Gaza into the Sinai Desert?
0: No, I don't think Israel is, is intending to do that. But if you had the option, if you're in the situation that uh, the dire situation that people in Gaza find themselves in, um, given even you know even a hundred thousand people a chance to evacuate, then that is a very a very compelling option. The issue here, it would
1: almost certainly be one way for that hundred thousand people, though. Wouldn't yeah, it?
0: this is exactly. But the, this is these are extremely extremely desperate measures. Mm. The issue is is that. Um, so many of uh, the Palestinians living in Gaza were displaced in 48 or further displaced in in sixty seven. the idea of leaving your homeland is so um, uh, you know it's, it's, it's incredibly emotional and sort of foundational one um, for Palestinians. and uh, so far Egypt and, and Jordan and and you know, other Arab countries have not offered to take in masses of Palestinian refugees precisely for this reason. But I think there are also other wider um, issues at play if you look at it in a a regional sense. I mean, the the bizarre thing about this um, war is that it has strangely revived discussion on the two state solution. Indeed. This has now become become a live issue, um, which I thought many of us thought that the two state solution would be buried forever. But this has really given it impetus. This is something that that Washington is talking about, European states are talking about. So I think. Looking at this move by Egypt, if you look at it in a wider context, the Saudi Arabia also has a role to play. Qatar, all the other, uh, the region has a a role to play in this. Um, This is where perhaps this isn't the end point. Maybe this is a staging post.
1: Um, Just a a final thought uh, on this one, Bill. The practical consequences, though, of 100,000 people, even, which is actually a a small number of those currently gathered in in Rafa, that would be nonetheless seismic, wouldn't it? Because that would be crossing what Egypt has so far said is a red line.
2: Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that there are Palestinians on both sides of that border because up until fifty six, mm-hmm. you know, Egypt occupied you know the Gaza Strip, and um, you know you had Palestinians moving backwards and forwards. So, yeah, you have Palestinians on both sides, but it's also you know and you know part of Egypt on on the other side of, of that that line. Um, and as you say, I mean, it would be a one way trip. Um, and you know, is Egypt going to just sort of say, you know accept you know we're going to be a part of what? will be portrayed as Israel's plan to partially depopulate the Strip, and then there will be a you know, domestic backlash if, you know, if they allowed it to happen, unless they can portray it as you know, merely you know some kind of temporary holding camp, say, for example, for people with foreign passports who are just being looked after on their way to, um, to, the, to their home country.
1: Well, let's now return to Europe, and for several years now, Hungary's foreign policy seems to have shared fundamental philosophical underpinnings with the kind of person who enjoys knocking on doors and then running away. The latest we's likely to have Hungary's neighbours Sighing despondently is an apparent deepening of security ties with China, prompting an amount of wonderment as to why a country which is already a member of the EU and NATO would need or want such a thing. The agreement struck apparently pledges cooperation on such matters as counterterrorism and law enforcement. Uh, Bill, what could possibly go wrong?
2: Well, if you were a Uyghur, and uh, living in Hungary um and the Chinese accused you of being a terrorist then you might be very worried indeed that maybe that the Hungarians might extradite you back to um back to your homeland um, and uh, and never be seen again um, so who knows what these words like counter terrorism and transnational crime actually mean um, are there for example I mean you know across Southeast Asia there are, all, there are tens of thousands of Chinese citizens employed in scam factories sort of online and, and telephone based you know kind of um, fraud operations are there any of those in Hungary is this what this is about or, or is this just some kind of agreement that sort of makes uh, everybody feel nice and it's, it's worth saying that, you know that China is a you know a major investor in Hungary. talking about um, big electric vehicle plants, battery plants, this kind of mm-hmm. thing coming in. So is this you know uh, just a way of sort of making nice, or are the Hungarians actually serious about this?
1: It was also the case, uh, Daniela, that exasperation with Viktor Orban was also kind of a. Fairly dominant theme, actually, of the, the Munich Security Conference. Um, what do you make of his motivations here? Because it strikes me that it's it's difficult to imagine that this is going to play tremendously well with his extremely nationalistic core constituency. Um, is he just trying to be funny? Has he possibly in, completely lost grip of the plot? What, what is he actually doing?
0: Well, he's been having a bit of a hard time recently domestically. Mm-hmm. He's had his, his, the president has, has resigned, and there's some other high-profile uh, departures um, from office. But you know, I think we, we we assume from our point of view that the uh, our history is is continuing to move towards Western democracies, and this is uh, this is the right way, and this is uh, this is the natural trajectory. But you know, I think Viktor Orbán sitting there explicitly. Hoping that uh, Donald Trump is the next mm-hmm. U.S. president, is thinking. Well, actually, you know what? The, the vectors of power lie in different directions. And so far, you know, the you know Europeans express frustration with Viktor Orbán, but not doing a great deal about it. He manages to get away with it. This is just, uh, to me, this is just um, this is just the next step in his sort of strong man. Uh Millwall No one <laughs> like. no one likes me, I don't care kind of uh trajectory.
1: A, a sports ball reference from Daniela <laughs> Pellard on the Monocle Daily. But, but what's funny about this is that this this could,
2: I think, you know, create the conditions for some severe problems for Victor Orban because uh, the Chinese want to invest. Um, they want to bring in Chinese workers. Orban has made a big thing about not allowing migration into the country. Mm-hmm. There is a labour shortage. They haven't got the skilled people to actually run these factories. So either the factories don't take off and he doesn't, you know, crow about know, doesn't get the chance to crow about it and enjoy the benefits of boom, or he has to change his position on migration and, and, and lose part of his support. So it would be kind of ironic if this close t- closeness with China did end up kind of chipping away at his support base.
1: Well, to the United States, and an inkling as to how former and possibly future President Donald Trump plans to cover the thick end of half a billion dollars in legal judgments for either ramping the value of his properties or defaming a woman he had previously sexually assaulted.
2: I think it's going to be a big success. Your influences have been very positive. They've been real influences and they love it and they love what we've done.
1: That's the real deal. That's the real deal. What he is doing there... Uh, Daniela is selling shoes. Also, while while doing that weird gesture that makes him look like he's playing an invisible accordion. Um, but no, he is selling Donald Trump branded shoes. They are gold and they are all yours, Daniela, for $399 a pair. Are you tempted?
0: I've always been fond of a metallic shoe, but um, <laughs> I, I prefer silver and definitely not Donald Trump branded
1: they, they, uh, there might be silver in the range. Well, not that... not going to lie, haven't looked into it, <laughs>
0: that, keep that it open mine. <laughs> Looking mind.
2: Looking closely, I saw a close-up picture on Twitter and guess where the shoes are made? Oh, China, China. So, uh, China.
1: Of, of, of course they are. Uh, would you pay $399 for them? Bill? No. Well, $3.99?
2: No, no. Some, and, some, and some Russian CEO paid $9,000 for an autographed pair or something. So,
1: uh, um, are, are we suggesting that Russians are buying overvalued? From Donald Trump. <laughs>
2: bill. Um, All he needs is a few thousand more and then he'll have uh, bills. Uh, uh,
1: indeed. We, we did want to broaden this discussion out a bit because we've got, you know, another nine months in which we can be making fun of Donald Trump too. Um, I guess desperate merchandise more generally, especially if it has... A political theme and daniela this doesn't happen nearly often enough you've actually brought something to show the table
0: <laughs> i have i have um would you like to describe i can hand it over to I, you i think
1: you should describe okay. it Daniela. it is your contribution right. it's a fantastic but, thing
0: yes it's a fantastic object and i'm glad i've kept it all these years it is um a bottle of uh, vladimir zhirinovsky's a uh, private label Eau de Parfum.
1: Uh, now, for for listeners who may not be up on that particular period of insane Russian history, Daniela, a, a précis of the life and works of Vladimir Zhuranovsky, if you would, which will illustrate why he really doesn't seem like the sort of chap who would be selling his own scent.
0: I'm not sure if it is his own scent, although well, you it does have. What do which you I imagine mean,
1: he smells? By, well. by, I imagine he smells like vodka and fascism. Um, um, I don't imagine that the bottle actually contains actual. Well, whiff of Zhurinovsky. It does say
0: natural spray in small letters. So, okay. So uh, Zhurinovsky was a, a far-right Russian nationalist. Uh, politician very loud very outspoken very fond of punch ups uh, in the Kremlin and uh, during he enjoyed a drink he, Well, he did I think mm-hmm. I think that's reasonable to say uh, during a meeting in his office in the Kremlin I think it was 2008 um, this was amongst the the um, the gifts I was uh, personally handed. I also included Jurenovski branded vodka, which I drank um, <laughs> D- and... during the interview, <laughs> <laughs> and um, other items. there might have been chocolate, cigarettes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but his office, you know, there was it was a wall to wall Jurenovski branded stuff and portraits and you know mannequins really.
1: This is amazing. I I cannot help but notice that the box is still in its original sealing plastic, Daniela. Have have you never been tempted before a night on the town to to dab Dab yourself yourself with (laughs) Oda Zurinovsky?
0: I I mean, you know... The, the possible consequences are <laughs> unimaginable. But I'm very glad I've kept it for all these years because finally it's it's come into its own.
1: Uh, Bill, it is very often the case, as I'm sure we all know from our own homes and from visiting the homes of other journalists, mm. that the homes of journalists tend to become, over the years, museums, basically, of political tat in, frankly, dubious taste. Um, regular listeners will have heard me before now confess to a Saddam Hussein wall clock in my kitchen um, among other accoutrements, do, do you have anything similar?
2: I have bits of more. I've travelled in Asia, so I've got I've got a you know a cupboard full of tea that various people have given me. But one, my sort of more treasured phenomenon is the thing that I store my toothbrush in and for see every morning, which is a tear gas canister from the 2001 Genoa G8 meeting riots. And the Italian Carabinieri fired an awful lot of tear gas uh, that weekend. Was this
1: particular canister fired at you personally?
2: Uh, it didn't feel very personal at the time, but it was. Definitely warm when I picked it up. Yeah. See,
1: the things—the the only time that I've actually been tear-gassed, I would not have had the presence of mind to collect souvenirs because I was too busy running away. Well, running away and sobbing yeah, and it, coughing. It, well,
2: it has—it has in fantastic Italian. It says "gas lacrimogeno." Think, <laughs> <among the sides. laughs> uh, uh, it was definitely lacrimogeno.
1: Uh, I can uh, tell you, outstanding. And just finally, if either of you ever found yourselves. Near enough to half a billion dollars in debt, uh, due frankly to your own oafish behaviour, terrible, unprincipled decision making. Not that I'm accusing you of either of those things. <laughs> um, is there is there a pellet range of anything you you would sell Daniela?
0: Um, maybe I could exploit the unique pellet aroma. I'm not sure if that's <laughs> really monetarised. I mean,
1: I, I, I was going to say like on on the subject of things in dubious dubious taste, a range of your cakes. Um... Which you know, I, I I have been party to over the years. I mean, I I can see that could be done at scale.
0: I do have a line in in, in niche cakes, uh, niche cakes which sometimes do um, push the boundaries of good taste.
1: Mm. And 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 what what would Hayton like? Well, I was like? going to say I've got a water tower to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure I'll get three hundred fifty billion dollars or million dollars for that <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, Bill Hayton and Daniela Pellet, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show our On This Day historical series considers what one can reasonably accomplish when one is president for less than an hour.
0: I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Wish me luck as you wave me
1: There can have been few consolations available to Liz Truss when she resigned as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom after seven calamitous weeks in 2022. She entered pub quiz immortality as the shortest serving occupant of the position, whisking the title from George Canning, who'd had the excuse of dying in office. And while Truss probably didn't want to hear that it could have been worse, it could have been worse. She could, for example, have been Pedro Lascurain, who was president of Mexico, for about 45 minutes. It is, plausibly, the shortest stint as head of government and or head of state ever undertaken. Like Truss, Lascurain had previously served a short and unimpressive stretch as his country's foreign minister. Unlike Truss, however, the brevity of his time at the top was not exclusively his own fault. When the February 19th of 1913 dawned, the president of Mexico was Francisco Madero, one of the more remarkable figures in his nation's, or indeed any nation's, history. The kind of person who inspires a minor sub-genre of balladry in their honour, like, for example, this one. The scion of one of Mexico's richest dynasties, Madero forsook the family firm to pursue his interests in an assortment of eccentric fields, homeopathy, spiritualism, vegetarianism and democracy. When he appeared poised to win Mexico's 1910 general election at the expense of elderly general Porfirio Diaz, the old man had Madero locked up. Madero escaped from prison and fomented revolt. When his troops reached Mexico City in June 1911, he did not seize power, but campaigned for election and won. Of the 15 months he ended up serving, it can be assessed that Madero's intentions were better than the outcomes. Having arrived in power as a revolutionary, he attempted to govern as a pragmatic liberal reformist, freeing the press, releasing political prisoners, encouraging trade unions, spending big on education. Elements of the old-school conservative establishment who thought him a dangerous radical and the seething left who believed him a timid sellout were never persuaded. It did not help that the United States thought him too volatile by half and intrigued against him. Madero was obliged to spend much of his term quelling putches and insurrections against himself, the last of which occurred on this day, 111 years ago, and permitted Pedro Lascurain a swift blast of spotlight. It was General Felix Diaz, nephew of former President Porfirio Diaz, who led the rebellion against Madero, abetted by one of Madero's own senior military commanders, General Victoriano Huerta, who perceived advantage in betrayal. Though it was no more or less than a coup d'etat, Huerta was anxious that some veneer of legitimacy be applied to proceedings. Consulting the constitution after Madero had been forced to resign and arrested, Huerta noted that the formal order of succession ran through the vice president and the attorney general, both of whom had also been deposed and were therefore indisposed. Next in line was the foreign minister, Pedro Lascurain, followed by the interior minister. Huerta ordered Lascurain to assume the presidency, appoint Huerta interior minister and then resign, making Huerta president. It took a little less than an hour, paperwork, presumably. Y nos hizo una Lascarain retired from politics shortly afterwards and lived until 1952. President Madero and Vice President Suarez lived another three days. The official line was that they were killed in Crossfire when loyalists attempted a rescue as they were being transferred to prison. Henry Wilson, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, who had been a key agitator encouraging the coup plotters, claimed to believe this account. He was in a minority, consisting possibly of himself. Among the majority who didn't buy it was, it turned out, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, elected the following year. When informed after taking office of the ambassador's role in Mexico's coup, President Wilson sacked him. He always refused to recognise Huerta's regime. Puerta ended up fleeing Mexico in 1915, ending up exiled in the US, where he died in custody, having been arrested on suspicion of conniving with Germany to get his old job back. He, too, was remembered in song in at least one version of La Cucaracha, the cockroach. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Daniela Pellet and Bill Hayton. Today's show was produced by Chris Chermak and researched by Naomi Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.